Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. Well, good morning, everybody. We've had lots of good mornings <laughs> this morning. Uh, yeah, my name is Shalina, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I get to open the scriptures with you this morning. This summer, we are seeing Jesus in unseen places, just like our our series bumper showed. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens the eyes of his disciples to what was hidden in the scriptures about him. They were walking with him, walking with the resurrected Jesus right beside them, and still they didn't recognize him. There's a mystery in that. We're going on a walk with Jesus this morning ourselves in the book of Genesis uh, through the story of Joseph, where Jesus is not named, but I believe he can be found this morning. So before we do that, let's pray together. We'll take a breath and, um, yeah, come into the presence of, of Jesus once again. So God, you say in your word that when we seek you, we will find you. And so we're opening our eyes to you. We're seeking you this morning. And Jesus just, um, yeah, as I was praying and, and seeing in this space, in this room, that you're actually with each one of us, sitting beside us, around us. And I believe that you have something to say to each one of us today. And so by your spirit, would you come and would you open our ears, open our minds, our hearts, our eyes so that we can see you. Because, Jesus, we know as we look around to a world that is um, hurting and broken, there are things going on that are way beyond us. We believe that the more that we see you, the more that we partner with you, that the hope of who you are will actually spread. As all of creation is groaning right now, they wait for the children of God to be revealed. So would you reveal yourself in us, God? that we might um, find you for ourselves and we might be good news to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who is Joseph? Why him? Who is he? The story of Joseph is this sweeping narrative that moves from the stories of the early patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and sets the stage for how the free people of Israel end up in Egypt as slaves, which plays out in the book of Exodus. So in Genesis, we start with just Abraham being called out of the city of his father with a promise from God to to be blessed, to be a blessing. They um, grow as a people, they're a migrant people, and they move from place to place. And yet at the start of Exodus, Israel's now a large group of people, a nation-sized people. And they're living under oppression, enslaved by Pharaoh. And Joseph's story is the bridge between these two realities. And so that's the big story at hand. And we're not going to tackle the whole thing. There's 13 chapters of Joseph's story. That would be a lot. But we are going to get up close and personal with Joseph and get to know him a little bit. So Joseph is the second youngest of Jacob's 12 sons. So there's a family tree up here. You don't need to take it all in. But it gives you, and do you want to pull that up, Tally? It gives you an idea um, 
Joseph is the oldest of Rachel, but he's the second youngest of the group of 12. He was Jacob's favorite. He was the firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel, if you know about Jacob's story. And he had him when he was old and gray. So there's no mistaking that Joseph was Jacob's favorite. We know that Joseph was physically handsome, well-built, that word is in there, (laughs) intellectually gifted, a born leader. Some of you are already leaning into this story because you can relate to that so much. Yeah? Okay. All right. <laughs> if you're familiar with the Joseph story, you'll know that he was precocious, but he, it would also seem that he was a little bit arrogant, or at the very least, a little self-unaware. And he would strut around in this coat, this special coat that his father had given to him for being his favorite. And he'd wear it in front of his brothers. And at 17, he had this infuriating sense of destiny from God. And it came to him in dreams. And his brothers in his dreams would actually bow down to him. So, of course, naturally, as any 17-year-old would, he shares this dream with his brothers and probably talks about it a whole lot. So Joseph's first setback in his story is when his brothers are, they're just tired of it. They're jealous, they're annoyed, and they decide that they need to get rid of their punk little brother, who's really annoying. And they're plotting how to kill him. One of his brothers tries to bring a cool head and they say, hey, he says, why don't we just throw him in a pit in the wilderness? And he's hoping to buy himself some time to figure out a way to save him um, from being killed by his other brothers. So Joseph is, is stripped and he's thrown into a dark, empty cistern. No food, no water. And before his nice brother, the one who doesn't want to kill him, <laughs> returns to save him, the other brothers sell him as a slave to a caravan of traders headed to Egypt. In Egypt, Joseph gets sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, who's the captain of the guard. And at first, it seems as though things are actually looking up for Joseph. He rises in prominence, and soon he's entrusted with absolutely everything in Potiphar's home. It says in scripture, he didn't even account for anything. Potiphar was not paying attention. He trusted Joseph so much, he wasn't even watching what was going on. But then our handsome young protagonist catches the attention of Potiphar's wife, the unwanted attention of Potiphar's wife. And when Potiphar leaves Joseph in charge while he's away on a business trip, his wife makes an advance that is refused by him. And whether out of embarrassment or anger or fear or all three, she grabs Joseph's clothing and runs off and accuses Joseph of abusing her and uses his cloak as proof of that. When Potiphar returns and hears the story, Joseph is thrown into prison. So that's where we are. Two setbacks already in Joseph's story. It's a little bit of a backstory, and we're going to come to today's text. So I invite you, if you want, you can take out your Bibles. It will be up on the screen. Genesis 40. Some time later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. 
The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. So again, Joseph has worked his way up the ranks in prison. He's been granted by God the favor of the guard, and now he's in charge of the prisoners as they join him. And the guards seem to trust Joseph implicitly. And then two new characters enter the story, the baker and the cupbearer, two high-ranking positions in the house of Pharaoh. And unfortunately for them, uh, we're going to find out in a few verses, Pharaoh apparently gets really intense about his birthday parties. And I kind of like to imagine that they have messed up the cake by putting red sprinkles on instead of rainbow sprinkles. And it's looking more like a cow than a unicorn cake, uh, as requested. And the juice for the party was supposed to be made from white grapes, not purple grapes. If anyone has thrown a seven-year-old's birthday party, you could empathize with this. Pharaoh is understandably angry, and he has them thrown in prison. Luckily, my seven-year-old doesn't throw me in prison. Surprise, after their ordeal, one night they have some bad dreams. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him, why do you look so sad today? Oh, that shows a little bit about Joseph's character, doesn't it? Just even that question, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the cupbearer tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph says, hey, don't worry. Pharaoh is going to forget all about this, and in three days you're going to be back in your happy place, back to your job. And then he says in verse 14, but when all goes well with you, remember me, show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. So that's the cupbearer. The baker taking all of this in is thinking, great, if that's what his dream means, then I'm good to go. Joseph, tell me what mine means. Maybe I'll sleep better tonight. Unfortunately for the baker, red sprinkled cow cakes are unforgivable, and the interpretation is less favorable. Joseph tells the chief baker that his dream means that he's going to die. And here's what happens, verse 20. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. He gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in, the, in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Joseph had even asked, hey, remember me when you get out of here. He even asked for it after giving him the interpretation. He didn't withhold it. But once again, Joseph is denied justice, and he remains in prison for another two years. Joseph, once again, 
has been forgotten. There's a word used often in the Old Testament connected to being forgotten, and it's forsaken. It means two things. One was to be forgotten, like out of mind, and the other was to be abandoned, having no one to care for you, often in reference to widows and orphans. But there is also this strong theme created through the lens of covenant or promise that runs all through the Old Testament, that God would never forsake his people. We see in 1 Chronicles 28, King David says to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And this was an echo of Moses saying the exact same thing to Joshua, preparing him to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 31. In the Psalms, God is known as the one who takes us up, even if forsaken by our father or our mother. He calls himself the father of orphans and protector of widows, lover of the stranger. The story of Israel is all about this covenant. God remembers his promise to Abraham, to Noah, to Adam. God does not forsake. God does not forget. But here we have Joseph already having been abandoned in a pit in the wilderness, betrayed, forgotten by his brothers, a victim of of jealousy and anger then thrown into a pit in prison, a victim of a vicious lie. And now, just plain forgotten, forsaken, over and over again by the people in his life. There's a typical telling of the Joseph story that, while true, can sometimes give us the wrong impression as we read back into the text. We play Joseph's story all the way to the end, and he's eventually remembered and brought to Pharaoh to interpret his dreams, and before long, he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. And when his brothers come crawling back to Egypt, starving from a famine, there's this whole saga about their reconciliation and Joseph's compassion and forgiveness and kindness. Joseph saves Israel and all of Egypt from starvation, and he's faithful to the very end of his life, giving all glory to God. And so maybe some of you have heard, especially in reference to the Joseph story, hey, regardless of the suffering or the betrayal or the evil or the setbacks, look, if we stay faithful, God's in control to turn everything around. He will stay faithful to his promises. And this is true. But it can also partly be a bad theology about suffering and what suffering is. Today, I think we need to look more closely into the unseen places in this story to really find Jesus. Jesus, who is God with us, co-sufferer. Joseph is certainly a character that can be and has been interpreted as a, a Jesus type. Typology is one of those fancy academic tools for interpreting symbols and characters and Um, that bring the New Testament and the Old Testament together. And so we could read the story and say, hey, look, Jesus was beloved by his father like Joseph. Jesus, too, was wrongly accused. Jesus, too, became a slave because of the sins of others. 
Jesus, too, was granted extraordinary grace and favor. Jesus, too, was given a place of authority that would lead to the salvation of his people. They were both sold for silver, stripped of clothing, bound, condemned with two other prisoners. And the list goes on and on and on. But I don't think that Jesus is just in all that foreshadowing, just cool and interesting. But I'm convinced that where Jesus wants us to see him today is actually in the very end of what we just read in this story. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. I think Jesus wants to meet us today in the forgotten place. I have never been forgotten in a cistern in the wilderness. I don't know about you. No food or water. I have not been stripped and sold as a slave by my family. But I have been betrayed. I've been thirsty for acceptance. I've been hungry for love and security. And I've felt the sting of rejection. I've never been thrown in prison, but I have been lied about. I've been wrongly accused of things. I've been held captive in dark places by my thoughts, the words of others, spiraling habits in my life. I have felt forgotten. And when I look over this room, I suspect that I'm not the only one who can relate to that feeling. Maybe lacking in health or energy to, to take on another day. Bound up in addiction. Maybe you've lost someone. It seems like everyone wants you to move on, but you're still in that place of grief. Maybe you're suffocating under crushing debt. Maybe there are circumstances at work or school or with your neighbor that are beyond human wisdom to resolve. Relationships are broken beyond repair. Maybe you're home alone all day with children and it feels like life is going nowhere and you're stuck. Maybe you're rejected for your race, your gender, mental health, sexuality. Maybe you're just lonely. And in that forgotten place, it seems like nobody sees you, nobody is coming to save you, nobody is coming to visit you, nobody is coming to make the pain go away. And the light is just a distant memory more than a reality. Quite literally, we feel forsaken. This is a human feeling, it's a human despair. Jesus himself borrows from David's cry in Psalm 22 to express this anguish in his humanity as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the cry of feeling separated, of feeling abandoned. We know that Jesus was not actually forgotten and left for dead. We know that Joseph was not left in the wilderness or held in prison forever. We get to see the rest of the story. But what about when we're still in the middle of the story? I remember distinctly this, this season for me in the midst of fostering our youngest daughter. She's now adopted. But I didn't know how the story would end. And I was scared and desperate and angry at God. 
I said, you called me to do this. Why have you forgotten me? Where are you? So I have an idea for us to consider. And it's not just hold on because this is going to get better. We actually don't get to know that about our stories. But what if we choose to believe that we are not forgotten, but rather we are hidden? So my husband is the storyteller in our family, and he has an incredible imagination. Don't tell him I told you. He's actually not here, so. (laughs) Back in May, uh, he was tasked with preaching to the youth as one of their leaders, and instead of, you know, like a three-point message, uh, Jesse came up with an alternate universe where humans are long gone, but there are now soul-infused robots who are learning about the Holy Spirit for the first time, and... He had like slides and pictures and apparently voices. I never got to hear the voices, but he's, he's my story guy. And so as we were driving home from camping and my mind started to wander away from our vacation and re-enter work mode, I started telling him what story I was going to be preaching on and where I was going, hoping to go with it. And without skipping a beat, he said, oh, like the ring of power. And I'm like, okay, go on. And he's like, you know, Lord of the Rings. It seems like the ring is lost and forgotten in the bottom of the river, but it's actually being hidden and being kept safe from getting into the wrong hands. So I had to Google this information. (laughs) And uh, for Lord of the Rings fans, this analogy quickly breaks down because Smeagol is quickly corrupted by the ring and turns into Gollum after it's found. But we're going to go with the initial epiphany that he had. Not forgotten, but hidden and kept safe. Colossians 3 says, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So what does it mean to have our lives hidden with Christ? Three things. Back to three points. No voices. (laughs) Being hidden is where we find power, find protection, we find freedom. So, where we find power. Isaiah 49 is typically a passage we turn to as a foreshadowing of the coming light of Christ, and it's called a messianic passage. And we typically focus on the later part of it, which paints a picture of the restoration of Israel. But we're going to read Uh, a few of the first verses in that passage. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. So this is in reference to Christ. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Hidden in the hand of God. We're like a tucked away arrow in the hand of God. And there, Joseph, Christ, is granted the power to restore Israel. Christ to restore all of humanity. The power for life and ministry is actually found in the hidden place. Theologian Ellen Davis talks about our greatest preparation happening in 
out-of-the-way places where perhaps no one much notices, approves of, or is grateful for what we do. When we no longer resist these shadowy places, but actually learn to get comfortable, to abide in them, God is able to display his light, his life, and his power through us. We don't rush ahead or curse God for not keeping up with our timetable, but we believe that his path for power is the best one. We see this play play out over and over again in the life of Jesus, withdrawing to deserted places, practicing obscurity, leaving just as the crowd swells. He would come down from the mountain with God and then perform miracles and proclaim the kingdom with authority. The hidden place is the power place. Each time Joseph emerges from his hidden place, whether it lasts two days in a cistern or more than two years in a prison, we see the hand of God immediately at work to bring about extraordinary circumstances of divine favor and power in Joseph's life. God uses hidden places to empower us. Being hidden is also where we find protection. The Psalms is teeming with imagery of divine protection. God's children are the hidden ones, or we dwell in the secret place, or under tents, or wings, or rocks of protection. Davis goes on to say, it is the hidden places where we are most closely under God's protective care. What if in our forgotten places, where we feel the most exposed and vulnerable, we are actually the closest to Jesus. We have to ask the Spirit to help us see our forgotten places as hidden places and ask for eyes to see how God is protecting us and even shielding us from further danger. Because Joseph was in the cistern, he was actually spared the brutality of his brothers. They intended on murdering him. Because Joseph was in prison, for two years he was shielded from the ongoing pursuits of Potiphar's wife, which absolutely would have wound up getting him killed. And who can know what other dangers were avoided? The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and for every danger we see, there are plenty more that we can't. And Ephesians says that our primary struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the dark forces of evil. We find our protection in hidden places. And finally, the hidden place, even the seemingly captive place, is actually where we find freedom. And this is so counterintuitive. It can't just be a mental exercise, something to be convinced of, um, or that you can believe because it's been explained well. It's not a trick of the mind. This is a deep work of the Holy Spirit, growing faith in us. There is a kind of blind trust that exists in darkness. We can't see. We don't know what path exists around the corner. We don't know if the next leg of our journey is going to be pleasant or dangerous, long or short. It's a patient trust. In dark places, we develop an instinct for searching him out, for moving toward him, for moving toward the light. 
We develop a practice of closeness, an instinct of faith that allows us to relax under his care. We let the rod and the staff of the good shepherd comfort us in the valley of the shadow of death. And he lights the path right in front of us. There's so much freedom in trusting that our future is secure, not because we have figured it out, what the next move is, but because God is faithful to lead and guide and be with us in those forgotten places. And this is the distinctive of Joseph's story. Though practically a captive for much of his life, we see Joseph live in a kind of freedom that is extraordinary. In the very moment that Joseph finally has the power and opportunity to enact justice for what his brothers had done to him, the path that they had sent him on, alone, forgotten, taken advantage of, he chooses mercy. So we jump ahead to Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Isn't that an incredible freedom? to live with the kind of trust in both the sovereignty and justice of God and to see the story of your life so clearly that you can be free from resentment and bitterness. Right here is actually where I see one of the most beautiful echoes of Jesus in the story. One that was missing in Jonah's story from last week that Matt shared with us. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. In Joseph, we see compassion, mercy, humility. When we see those things in another person, we have seen Jesus. We have seen the perfect image of God incarnate. So what would Joseph's story have looked like if he had not spent time in those forgotten places? I wonder if he would be someone who could forgive his brothers, forgive the cupbearer. I wonder if his upward trajectory and all of the, the favor would have gone unchecked in his soul. Would he have wound up proud, self-absorbed? Would he have gotten himself killed? But what if in those endless days of loneliness and feeling forgotten and abandoned, those days were actually the crucible of Joseph's character. Hidden, not forgotten, in the shadow of God's hand. They were where he found power and protection and freedom that allowed him to have such a confidence in the intention of God for his good that he could look at all the evil and the suffering that fell upon him and still come to the end of his life inhabiting peace and joy and showing showing mercy and generosity to those around him. When I think about how miserable I am when I feel forgotten, and then I look at Joseph, I want to be more like that. So what does Jesus have to say about our unseen places? Who has forgotten you? 
Where do you feel forgotten? Maybe you're in the crucible of hidden places right now, and you're tempted to feel forgotten. And you need power. You need protection. You need freedom from something. What does Jesus want to show you about your circumstance? Maybe you just need the reminder, the embrace of community, of being together to keep on going. The church is a healing community for one another, not because we ease every pain or solve every problem, we definitely don't, but because we create the space to confess our perceived forgottenness. We make room for stories of wilderness and imprisonment. And then we practice hiding together. And maybe today, like me, you need to look back on seasons where you have felt forgotten and choose instead to look back with gratitude for the ways that God was protecting you or freeing you or empowering you. As we look at Joseph's story and at our own, I want you to know that God has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten about you. He has not overlooked or disregarded you. He has not forsaken you. In fact, he is in the very middle of whatever part of your life that feels the most like a prison or the most like a wilderness, and he's meeting you there. He's protecting you and empowering you for what comes next. As we practice feeling for him in dark places, we find grace and mercy in life. And finally, I want to speak to a question that may still be sitting here in this room. Even if we can receive this gift of forgotten places being hidden places, there's a reality. There is suffering in this life that does not look like power, protection, or freedom. It looks a lot like death. Sometimes human stories end like Joseph's, and we emerge from circumstances stronger and freer than we, when we entered. But some stories don't. Death actually looks like the final word. So what do we do with that? So I want us to look one more time to see Jesus in this story. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'm going to read um, a little piece also from Ellen Davis. Christian readers of Genesis may also see an important connection between this first explicit biblical story of forgiveness and the theology of the New Testament. In a probing study, John Levison shows how the story of Joseph simulated death and the continued life of the family is a turning back of the very real and deadly forces of adversity. Thus, it resembles a motif found in both Testaments, the resurrection of the dead. Viewed in that light, the Joseph tale is the first instance of a connection between resurrection and forgiveness of sins. Death is the ultimate forgotten place. But because Jesus went there for us, it's actually the ultimate hidden place. There is no wilderness or prison or forgotten place that Jesus has not already plunged the depths of. And so when our life is hidden in Christ, we are not forgotten even in death itself. We share in the same power, protection, and freedom that raised Christ from the dead. There is no unreachable place. 
Romans 6 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this is good news. Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.